calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is of gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Real drivers of currency markets over time horizons that matter and the renminbi situation. These are the topics of our discussion today. I'm Sam Lum from the Asia-Pacific Regional Office of CFA Institute in Hong Kong. And joining us today is Professor Avinash Pasol, Chairman of Intelligence Capital and Elara Capital. Professor Pasol, thanks for being here with us today. Thank you. One of your key insights is that policy matters more than traders think and that exchange rate trend to the point which provokes a policy response. Could you elaborate a bit on that? I think the most important thing to, to begin with is that the whole point of the seven rules of foreign exchange is that they are rules of foreign exchange in the way they operate in the short term, which, is very, which are very different than the way foreign exchange markets operate in the long term. The short term isn't just a sort of mini version of the long term. It's a very different world, a different landscape. And in the long run, foreign exchange markets are driven by inflation. But in the short run, they exhibit some very special features. And one of them, as you said, was the very strong trending behavior of foreign exchange markets. And foreign exchange markets will trend and keep on trending uh, until uh, it provokes a policy response. The turning points of foreign exchange markets are not determined by the markets themselves screeching to a halt and reversing gear. They're determined by policymakers. And that's something that traders often forget. They tend to dismiss policymakers. Uh, but the tops and bottoms of currency markets are defined and marked by policy intervention, normally in monetary policy, but sometimes actually in intervention. I always remember the first ECB president, Wim Duisenberg, when the euro uh, during his term sailed under parity. And he was asked, are you worried about the euro's value? And he said, no, I'm not worried. And really, I knew that what would happen is the euro will fall till he was worried. And that's what happened. It fell to a low of uh, the mid-80s and then the European Central Bank responded. I think the key is to expect the trend to continue until it reaches such an extreme point that the policymakers will intervene. So a good example today is um, the, the US dollar, or the euro, or even the renminbi. Uh, these currencies will continue along their trend. The renminbi will continue rising until policymakers decide they want to stop it rising. And that's a long way from where we are today. Another insight you have is that the more open an economy is, the more the exchange rate will end up being managed. How does this come about? This is a rule uh, specially formulated for my American friends because people tend to think about currency markets uh, based on their own experience. 
And if you live in a large economy like America or China, um, you wonder why people have fixed exchange rates. But when you live in a large economy, the exchange rate doesn't matter. When you live in a small, open economy, international factors can drive your exchange rate and derail your economy and economic policies. And therefore, what countries tend to do is they tend to try and limit that source, that avenue of shocks to their economy. And if you look around the world, the smaller, the more open the economies are, the more they are intervening in the foreign exchange markets or they have a fixed parity or some kind of exchange rate arrangement. The euro arrived as a result of that. The euro was the, is the currency of a collection of relatively small open economies who did not want their domestic economies to be derailed by exchange rate changes. You also have this interesting rule of thumb to assess whether a central banker's statement is significant or insignificant. When I used to um, run currency research at JP Morgan, uh, and uh, I guess I, I, I got too, uh, uh, what's the word, took myself too seriously. I had the corner office, and I used to get annoyed when traders would run in and say, this central bank governor or that central bank governor has just said this, what does it mean? So I thought I would help them come up with a rule which would stop them running into my office. And the thing is, central bank governors say, often say things that have no relevance whatsoever. And the way to work out whether it has relevance is to ask yourself if they could ever have said the opposite. If the opposite of what they said, uh, of what they said had, has some meaning, then what they've said today is important. But if the opposite has no meaning, so for example, uh, central bank governors often come out of meetings, they're pressed by the press to say something, and they say, we are watching exchange rates closely. And it would be hard for them to say, we're not watching exchange rates. Uh, or another classic central bank speak is to say, um, we would like to see exchange rates um, close to their fundamentals and it tends to send panic amongst traders, thinking, are they about to intervene? Mm -hmm. When they could never ever say, we want to see exchange rates far from their fundamentals. So that's one of those meaningless statements in which you shouldn't respond to. In terms of market dynamics, you have come to the conclusion that global currency moves in the short term is mainly driven by global shifts in investor appetites for risk and not by the shifts in domestic fundamentals at all. How do you arrive at this conclusion? I learned this rule again when I was at JP Morgan, and every week JP Morgan uh, on a Monday would publish the rank of markets performance. And uh, before I began studying this, uh, as someone who was in charge of currency research, what I wanted to think about where the Mexican peso would be, or the Brazilian real, uh, or in those days the Spanish peseta, I would ask my, the local economist, and they would tell me the currency will be strong or weak based on their economic fundamentals. But I would notice every week as I picked up this document that if a risky currency like Spain or Brazil or Indonesia was at the top of the list, so would all the others. And if the following week Brazil was at the bottom of the list, 
so would Argentina and Italian lira and the Spanish peseta and the Indonesian rupiah. What seemed to be driving markets in the short term were not domestic economic fundamentals, but the market's appetite for risk. If they loved risk, all the risky markets were going up together. If they were trying to run towards safety, all the risky markets were going down together. Another insight that you came up with is that when there's a crisis starting, investors generally do not add to their risk by shorting currencies with bad fundamentals. Rather, most just want to sell those holdings that are easiest to sell as quickly as they can. And it is this behavior that drives the first market reaction to bad and uncertain news. Could you tell us a bit more about this? This is a, a, another lesson uh, I learned. And, and you know, you, you learn lessons uh, well when they cause you pain. Uh, and what I used to do at times of financial turmoil, uh, the traders would come and look to the economist and, and we would tell people, well, here are the countries with the good fundamentals and you should buy these. And here are the countries with the bad fundamentals and you should sell these. Mm -hmm. And in financial turmoil, that was always wrong. And it's wrong because in turmoil, people don't go and start buying things that look to be valuable. They get out of what they're in. They run home. They search for safety. And when they get out of what they're in, they're not selling the bad stuff because they're not in the bad stuff. They're selling the markets they thought were well-valued and were good. So in a turmoil, the countries that fall the most are ones which have the best fundamentals. Or were thought to have had the best fundamentals just a few weeks ago. And uh, finally, you have this interesting insight that if an economy has a large stock of foreign-owned debt, low and rising interest rates are not supportive for the currency. Rather, what is more advantageous are high and falling rates. Does this sound a bit applicable to the U.S. situation? It sounds a bit like the U.S. today, and it was very much like the U.S. in 1993 when I learned this rule again out of one of those big forecast failures. Back in 1993, U.S. interest rates were again around, actually slightly higher than where they are today, um, following the recession. And uh, as the economy was picking up, I predicted that the Federal Reserve would tighten interest rates and the dollar would rally. And the Federal Reserve tightened interest rates and the dollar collapsed. And every time they tightened, the dollar fell further. And what I learned was that, well, Although economically, higher interest rates are good for currency, people have to buy something. And interest rates were coming from such a low level that people weren't buying money market rates. But equally, as interest rates were rising, they didn't want to buy bond markets. And as liquidity was being taken out by the Federal Reserve, they didn't want to buy equities. So the problem for the dollar was, there wasn't one instrument that people wanted to buy. It was only when interest rates had reached a certain threshold to a level where people would be happy to be in deposits did the dollar start to rally. So when you have a country in which people buy the debt, rising interest rates may not be a good thing for the currency if they start off at a very low levels. And finally, the renminbi is going offshore. There's much talk about internationalization and about the renminbi becoming fully convertible in five to 10 years. How could we think of the renminbi within your framework of how currency markets work? The renminbi, of course, is, a, is an unusual situation because you're talking about a, 
a currency that is restricted in its movements. And it, it seems to be a one-way bet. Markets tend not to like one-way bets. Um, uh, but it looks like a strong economy, um, inflation now under control, and highish interest rates relative to the rest of the world, and many people believe in undervalued currency. And all those things point to continued appreciation. And what would happen if the renminbi was a ordinary currency is today it would jump to that point which the market said was fair value. And therefore, if you missed a trade, you've missed a trade. However, because the government is regulating the exchange rate, in a way they're giving traders free money. Because they're giving you an opportunity and a time to buy something that will appreciate over the long term. Of course, if you can buy it, many people are looking for proxies, like the Hong Kong dollar, perhaps even the Singapore dollar, as a proxy for the Chinese renminbi. Well, thank you, Professor Pesol, for sharing your thoughts and insights on what drives currency markets over time horizons that matter and on the renminbi situation. Thank you very much. And thank you, our viewers, for joining us for this episode of CFA Institute's Take 15 series. Copyright 2012 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.